don't say nothing. Sorry, just say nothing. Sit next to me. Just be. Heaven in the ordinary. There's no place like home. I want to go home. Home sweet home. I can't wait to get home. Paul, in our reading this morning, shifts the emphasis. Paul, in our reading this morning, changes the dimensions. Paul, in our reading this morning, brings the focus to the reality of the day today. Paul moves his focus for resurrection living into the living room. Paul says that after all, isn't it in the home and in the workplace that we really do have the most experience of living like this resurrection living to which he has been calling to us? Resurrection living in the interactions over the dinner table. Resurrection living over the squabbles in the kitchen. Resurrection living in the looking for lost keys. Resurrection living in the home at times can seem more like a battleground than a place to grow into the fullness of Christ. Peterson, in the book, would say to us that many people begin reading Ephesians. They begin with that opening uh, sentence. Do you remember the 201 words in Greek with no grammar and no full stop? And by the time they reach the end of that sentence, they're mesmerized. Their breath is taken from under them. Yet by the time they get to chapter 4, well, they start to get a little bit bored. They start to get a little bit restless because the marvelous metaphors that they got at the beginning of the book have slowly but surely given way to just normal, plain narrative. And they could be forgiven for thinking, well, we have worked through who God is and what God does. We've looked at the church and we've kind of got a flavor of what it means to live resurrection living in our daily lives. So they think, sure, I could just shut the book now. I've kind of got the gist of it, Paul. Thank you so much. Let me get on with just living it. But if we close Ephesians before we get to chapter 5, we miss out on something spectacular. Because it's in chapter 5 that Paul brings his argument to the places that we live and to the people that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis. He tells us how it is that we are to put resurrection into practice where we are. From the places that we live as husbands and wives, as children and as friends, to the places where we cook meals and the places that we relax in, to the places that we go at the end of the day to get some rest, to the school ground, to the staff room, to the garage forecourt, to the boardroom, heaven in the ordinary. I have to confess, and I was sharing with this with Steve just before the service began, that heaven in the ordinary, I thought, well, the cheesy kind of pop guru in me could maybe get a wee bit of Belinda Carlisle in there, and we could have a bit of heaven as a place on earth, uh, if any of you remember that. And I thought, Jonathan, catch yourself on any, if you have any credentials left, if you start quoting Belinda Carlisle, you might actually lose them forever. Um, so rather, I thought we could use the words of the punk poet John Cooper Clark to focus our thinking, and I actually don't know which is more cheesy, Belinda Carlisle or this, but I thought this might be a bit better because I could say at least he's a punk poet. Let me be your vacuum cleaner breathing in your dust. Let me be your Ford Cortina. I'll never rust. 
If you like your coffee hot, let me be your coffee pot. If you li- let me be your raincoat for those frequent rainy days. Let me be your dreamboat when you want to sail away. Let me be your teddy bear. Take me with you anywhere. Let me be your electric meter. I'll not run out. Let me be your electric heater. You won't get cold. That you that you get cold without heaven in the ordinary. Ultimately, for Paul, there is nothing of God that is not livable by us. Peterson comments. Nothing in creation, nothing in salvation is so remote or irrelevant to who we are and the people we interact with. Every menial task, every floor mopped, every redraft of a memo, heaven in the ordinary. Yet, heaven may be in the ordinary, but when we read about Jesus, where is it we turn? Well, we turn to the stories of Jesus' power. Oh, how we love Jesus helping the lame to walk. Oh, how we love the blind being able to see. How we love faith being restored. How we love the story of the cross and how we love that triumphant resurrection. Yet, as we read scripture, we are reminded that, well, there's an awful lot of Jesus' life that we don't actually know anything about. Yes, we have that birth narrative that we'll be celebrating next month. Yes, we have Jesus standing up to the religious authorities in the temple But then there's, well, there's silence. And suddenly Jesus is 30. And I'm sure we don't all believe that Jesus didn't do anything in those in-between years. Yet in the scripture, what do we have? Silence. Jesus, the school years. Silence. Heaven in the ordinary. Jesus tidies his room. Silence. Heaven in the ordinary. Jesus helps his dad in the carpentry shop. Silence, heaven in the ordinary. Jesus, the troubled teenager. Silence, heaven in the ordinary. Suddenly, baptism, doves from on high, voices from heaven, ministry begins. Yet, in Jesus' life, there is more than we seem to have record of. And in the middle, well, heaven in the ordinary. Every meal shared, every table wiped, every cry heard, every laugh shared, heaven in the ordinary. Peterson would argue that if we are to separate the world into two spheres, if we're to separate the world into the secular and the sacred, and ultimately that it's the Christian's responsibility to be solely focused on the sacred, we have got something wrong. Remember that verse that we're so keen on in this country. Remember that verse that we see nailed to trees as we drive about. John 3.16, a verse that most of us could recite from the top of our lips and our mind without even thinking, for God so loved the world. And for Peterson, it all seems to hinge on that word, world. For God so loved the world. And if it was good enough for God to send his only son to die for Why have we in the church become so obsessed with cathedrals? Why have we become so obsessed with institutions? And why have we become so good at becoming scholars of the sacred? Heaven in the ordinary. In 1973, George Perrick published an essay called Approaches to What? 
For him, in that essay, he challenges us and says that we radically need to rethink our patterns of thinking. We radically need to rethink why we have neglected the ordinary things of life. He comments, what speaks to us seemingly is always the big event, the untoward, the extraordinary, and the front page splice, the banner headlines. Railway trains for him only come to exist once they're derailed. And the more people that are killed when they're derailed, according to the media, the more they seem to exist. Aeroplanes, it seems, only come to exist when they're hijacked. And the, the sole fate of the car, it would appear, if we believe everything that we read, seems to be to be crushed into a tree. For him, the daily newspapers speak of everything but the daily. The papers annoy him. They annoy him because they do not ask the questions that he wants to ask, and they do not answer those questions in return. What's really going on, he asks. What about the rest of our life? Where is it? Why isn't it accounted for just like Jesus, the, the, the middle years, the banal, the obvious, the common, the habitual, the background noise? Where is it? For him, what we need to be questioning is bricks. We need to be questioning concrete. We need to be questioning glass, our table manners, our utensils, our tools. We need to question those things which seem to have ceased forever to astonish us. Ernest Hemingway, in his novel A Farewell to Arms, picks up on this. He writes the following. I was always embarrassed when the words sacred, glorious, and sacrifice and expression in vain were uttered. Abstract words such as glory, honor, courage, or hallow were obscene beside the concrete names of villages, the numbers of roads, the numbers of regiments, and dates. Heaven in the ordinary. Maturity this morning for us cannot be achieved without the company of others. Maturity can only be achieved through the dirt and through the grime of life. And how is maturity achieved? Well, it's achieved through other named individuals. People that cannot be handpicked by us because we admire them, but rather because they are in the family that we find ourselves in. No matter how much we love them, no matter how much at times they might get on our nerves, maturity is lived out in the home place. But it's lived out somewhere else as well. Do you remember those weeks ago when Steve was talking about saints and Paul tells us that all of us here this morning our saints, regardless of our baggage and our hang-ups and our backgrounds, well, it is in the company of these saints that we grow in maturity. The person in front of you, the person behind you, the person to your left, and the person to your right. Church this morning does not allow for the individual. We're all in this together. And yes, that might have been a lovely term used by the Conservative government to get elected in the middle of a recession, but here this morning, here 
every week. Here in Fitzroy, we live that out. For us, it isn't any form of propaganda. For us, it isn't a slogan to win a few extra votes. Here, it is a way of life. And why, then, is it a way of life? Because Paul tells us we are to be subject to one another, members of one another, brothers and sisters. And why does Paul use these terms? Well, Peterson would argue that Paul uses these terms because we have a responsibility to and an intimacy with those in this space this morning. Those who are not our blood family and those who are in our lives not by choice. What Paul this morning is doing in this chapter is replacing what culture says we should be and how the world around us defines us and tells us there is more. Your identity is in Christ. Resurrection living this morning is bigger. Resurrection living this morning is a whole new way of doing things. This morning, we are to recognize our roles, not in terms of culture, but in terms of Christ. Because as we have read in Ephesians, we are being told that we are to grow into the full stature of Christ. I guess for me over the past couple of weeks, aside from rereading Eugene Peterson's Practice Resurrection, which I should have said for anybody visiting with us, is the book that we've been using to try and focus our thinking as we move through it. I've also been reading a book by Kester Bruin called Why We Love Pirates and How They Can Save Us. Bear with me. But as I read it the other day, there was a paragraph that stood out and I thought, hmm, resurrection living. He he says the following, the skull and the crossbones does not just mean we're bringing you death, rather it announces that we are the dead. We, the abused, the flogged, the ones you treated as less than human, have escaped your power, have slipped away from the identity that you voiced onto us. We, the ones you took for dead, are returning as dead, thus free from all fear, free from all human labels, classifications, or ranks. We might say that pirates didn't raise the Jolly Roger as a symbol of violence, but rather as a declaration that no more violence could be done to them. They were dead, yet still lived, free from all fear, Free from all human labels, classifications, and ranks. They were dead, yet still lived. Resurrection. Living outside the culture of the day that tried to kill them. Living outside the expected norms of a citizen. Living from a different place. Dying to a world, yet still moving, breathing, and operating within it. Maturity this morning for Paul is not a bodybuilding regime. It's not something that we follow a certain diet, that we lift weights to develop our muscles and then we admire ourselves in the mirror just to see how well we're doing. No, maturity this morning cannot come about by ourselves, for ourselves, but it is relational. We live in a world where everything has a name and we live in a world where everyone has a name. We live in a world where one no object, whether in the house or in the workplace, 
is to be viewed in isolation. No one object is a piece of art in a museum to be contemplated apart from everything else. This morning, in maturity, we enter into another person's life, not from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness. As Paloma Faith was singing in that song, let's see each other when we're weak. Yet we live in a world of competition. Academic competition, salary competition, athletic competition, fashion competition, appearance competition, performance competition. There are, of course, many of those spheres in life where competition is good. But this morning, the moment that we allow that competition to come in through those front doors or through our back door, we are in a real mess. Be subject to one another. Be subject to one another. Out of reverence for Christ, be subject to one another. Reverence. For Paul, it's fear. Reverence, translators, Paul, fear. Translators, reverence, Paul, fear, awe, respect. Not in terms of horror, panic, or anxiety, but in a way that Kierkegaard would later write, God cannot be domesticated. God cannot be turned into something that we are comfortable with. Because a God this morning without holy mystery is not a God to worship on our knees, but rather a cheap idol to be used on demand. We live this morning in a world where being subject to one another is an alien idea. We live in a world where to have reverence for Christ, well, that's even more alien. There's more this morning to us than us. Ephesians is an immersion into relationality. Everything is connected. Heaven in the ordinary. Peterson puts it beautifully in the following. Peterson says that we are born out of an act of relationship. And what happens following conception is a nine months apprenticeship in intimacy in the womb. Then we're born and things seem to go quite well for us. Things are provided for us. We don't have to worry about our food, our home, our shelter, or our clothes. But somewhere in those years of getting everything done for us, we succumb to this idea that maybe we could achieve it for ourselves. What would happen if I did what I wanted? Or better still, what would happen if I was to thrust my ideas of what I want onto other people? Be subject to one another. Kathleen Norris reminds us that it's in the daily tasks, the daily acts of love and worship that serve to remind us that religion is not strictly an intellectual pursuit. Rather, the Christian faith is a way of life, resurrection living, not an impregnable fortress made up of ideas, not a philosophy, not even a grocery list of beliefs, rather a life. Peter Barrett wrote a poem entitled, Where is God? And in it, he says some of these lines that follow, where is God? She just walked past you, actually smiling at the kids. Where's God? 
in the grit and in the grime, in the mundane joy of washing dishes, hoovering the house, wiping babies' bottoms, visiting the sick and listening to the lonely. Where is God? When we scratch beneath the makeup of our raw lives, tenderness and compassion are available if we look hard enough. Heaven in the ordinary, maturity, out of reverence for Christ, resurrection living, be subject to one another. Heaven in the ordinary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the relationships that you have put in our life, for the families that we have and the people we encounter at work or when we go to the shops that are so familiar to us. Father, we pray that in the midst of those settings, it can be hard at times to follow you and your teaching and to live out this resurrection living to which you have called us. Father, shape us in the ordinary. Mold us in the ordinary. Help us to see you in the ordinary. Help us to grow together as a body of believers, subject to one another, no one more superior than the other, all equal, growing and maturing in Christ together, that we may, as a congregation, achieve what it is to grow to the full stature of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.